The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. For every worker I met who's gained a little bit of breathing room to seek out a better paying job, for every entrepreneur who's gained the confidence to pursue their small business dreams, I know the families all across America are hurting because of inflation. I understand what it feels like. I come from a family where when the, when the price of gas or food went up, we felt it. It was a discussion at the kitchen table. I, went, uh, I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously, and it's my top domestic priority. And I'm here today to talk about solutions, and there's going to be more we're going to have to talk about as well. But first, I want us to be crystal clear about the problem. There are two leading causes of inflation we're seeing today. The first cause of inflation is a once-in-a-century pandemic. Not only did it shut down our global economy, it threw the supply chains and demand completely out of whack, especially in countries where more effective recovery responses uh, uh, weren't available, especially in those sectors that rely on semiconductors. These supply challenges have been further uh, hampered uh, by uh, the onset of Delta and Omicron viruses. And you've all seen it, you've all felt it. And this year we have a second cause, a second cause, Mr. Putin's war in Ukraine. You saw, we saw in March that 60% of inflation that month was due to price increases at the pump for gasoline. Putin's war has raised food prices as well because Ukraine and Russia, two of the world's major breadbaskets for wheat and corn, are essentially completely stalled. Ukraine has 20, 20 million tons of grain in storage in silos right now. They're trying to figure out how to get out of the country and to market, which would reduce prices around the world. Normally, normally we'd have already begun to export them into the market, but, it's, uh, but it hasn't because of Putin's invasion. So we're working with our European partners to get this food out into the world so they could help bring down prices. But it's difficult because, again, of Putin and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And those two major contributors to inflation are both global in nature. That's why we're seeing historic inflation in countries all over the world. But here's the good news. Because of the actions we've taken, America's in the stronger position to meet this challenge than just about any other country in the world. Some of the roots of the inflation are outside of our control, to state the obvious. But there are things we can do and we can address and we need to do. That starts with the Federal Reserve, which plays a primary role in fighting inflation in our country. I put forward a highly, highly qualified nominees to lead that institution. And I strongly urge the Senate to confirm them without delay. The Fed has dual responsibilities. First is achieving maximum employment and second is stable prices. And while I'll never interfere with the Fed's judgments and decision or tell them what they have to do, they're independent, they're independent. I believe that inflation is our top economic challenge right now, and I think they do too. I've built a strong, we've built a strong economy with a strong job market. And I agree with what Chairman Powell said last week, that the number one threat is the strength and that strength that we built is inflation. So the Fed should do its job, and it will do its job, I'm convinced, with that in mind. Now, as I said when I came to, uh, to what Congress and the President can do to fight inflation, Americans have two potential paths forward. The first is my plan, the Democratic plan. plan put forward by congressional Republicans is a second alternative. Here's how each of us would take, tackle inflation. My plan is to lower employer, lower everyday costs for everyday costs for hardworking Americans. 
and lowered the deficit by asking large corporations and the wealthiest Americans to not engage in price gouging and to pay their fair share in taxes. The Republican plan is to increase taxes on the middle class families, let billionaires and large companies off the hook as they raise profits, raise prices and re profits at record number, record amounts. And it's really that simple. But let me explain why this choice is so important. Let me start. Let me start with the Putin price hike, high gas prices and energy prices. My plan is already in motion. I led the world and other countries to join with us to coordinate the largest release of oil from our stockpiles of all the countries in history, 240 million barrels to boost global supply. Here at home, U.S. oil and gas production is approaching record levels. In fact, we produced more oil domestically in my first year in office than my predecessor did in his first year. To further drive down prices, my administration is allowing the, state, the sale of gasoline using homegrown biofuels, biofuels this summer, which wasn't allowed before. And to reduce our dependence on foreign oil and reckless autocrats like Putin, I'm working with Congress to pass landmark investments to help build a clean energy future as well. From tax credits for businesses to produce renewable energy, to tax credits for families to make their homes more energy efficient, I met with nearly a dozen CEOs of America's largest utility companies. And they, to a person, told me that, and they're including Southern Company, American Electric Power, and 10 others, they confirmed that if we pass the investments I'm talking about, we'll immediately lower families' utility bills by as much as $500 a year, according to their one estimate. That's by the way, they're going to make their homes more secure in terms of heat not getting out and air conditioning not escaping because they have they have good insulation. Now, what's the congressional Republican plan with respect to energy? First of all, their plan is to give oil companies a free pass. For example, right now, oil companies are sitting on 9,000 unused leases, oil leases, which are the property of the federal government, on the property of the federal government. Under my plan, they would have to pay taxes, and if they don't use those leases to produce more oil, they just can't sit on it. Unlike under the Republican plan, they'd be allowed to continue to sit on this land without producing while shipping record profits back to their investors. The fact is, the average cost of a barrel of oil has been steady for weeks. So, uh, so why do gas prices keep going up so high? Republicans have offered plenty of blame but not a single solution to actually bring down the energy prices. You know, we have no plan. They have no plan to bring down energy prices today. No plan to get us to a cleaner energy independent future tomorrow. So in the future, American families are no longer subject to the winds and of dictators halfway around the world. The next thing is let's compare our plans when it comes to lowering everyday cost. My plan is to make concrete, concrete, common sense steps to bring down the biggest expenses that families are facing. Let's take drug prices. My plan will let Medicare negotiate prices for prescription drugs like they do with the uh, with, with with the Department of uh, uh, with the military as it relates to what the administration is able to negotiate for prices for military. The cap and I also call for a cap on the price of insulin, which 200 million, excuse me, beg your pardon, 200,000 American children rely on because they have type 2 diabetes at $35 a month. It costs 10 bucks to make the insulin. They make a significant profit instead of the average price of about $640 a month. Think of the difference it will make in millions of American families, like the family I met with in Virginia, about three weeks ago, struggling every day, every single month to afford their son's insulin. And on, on this and other issues, I've laid out specific proposals to Congress to bring down the cost of everyday cost all American fam many American families face. And that's in addition to the work my administration has already done to lower prices. Another reason why prices are up for products people need relates to whether or not the manufacturer has access to all the materials they need to build a product. 
Think of the materials you need to build a house. If you can't get the materials from the ship to shore, from the, sh from the, uh, from the shore to the home, the prices are going to go up. That's why we brought labor and industry together on the West Coast the, uh, to improve operations at the ports, to speed up the transfer of products from abroad to shore, from shore to the location where they're going to be used. So that those products can move more quickly and cheaply. We haven't had enough truckers, for example, to deliver the lumber or other goods. That's why we are executing a plan to get more truckers on the job. It reduces the time it takes to move the goods quickly. Another problem we face is in some industries, it's just there isn't enough competition. And I've often said that capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. So we're promoting competition for everything from uh, internet services to meat processing. We basically have four meat processors in the whole country. They process the meat that goes into the hamburgers you buy. So they set the price. When there's no competition, they can set the price higher and higher. So we're helping smaller companies get into the game to compete and help bring down the overall prices. The bottom line is easing, easing these bottlenecks and making our supply chains more secure is a major focus of my economic strategy. So things move more quickly. Prices go down, not up. You know, some parts of my plan I've been able to get done on my own. I mean, just without congressional approval. Some parts are being held up by Congress. But all of my plan is focused on lowering costs for the average family in America, to give them just a little bit of breathing room. Now, what's the congressional Republican plan? They don't want to solve inflation by lowering your costs. They want to solve it by raising your taxes and lowering your income. I happen to think it's a good thing when American families have a little more money in their pockets at the end of the month. But the Republicans in Congress don't seem to think so. Their plan has actually made working families, is going to make working families poorer. You don't have to take my word for it. It's in writing. They've made their intentions perfectly clear. Senator Rick Scott, Wisconsin, a member of the Senate Republican leadership, laid it all out. And a plan It's the ultra mega agenda. Their plan is to raise taxes on 75 million American families, over 95 percent of whom make less than one hundred thousand dollars a year total income. The average tax increase would be about one thousand five hundred dollars per family. They've got it backwards, in my view. I proposed a minimum tax for billionaires. In recent years, the average billionaire has paid about 8 percent in federal taxes. Congressional Republicans have proposed increasing taxes. All right, that's the president speaking there at the White House about inflation, what he calls his top domestic uh, priority. Our Kayla Tausch, she's been listening in. And Kayla, I'll send it to you. The White House has really been struggling to control the narrative uh, on inflation, uh, the primary causes of it, which the president today says the pandemic and, as he calls, Putin's war in Ukraine. But at least you get an idea about what he's trying to sell to the American people today. The Putin price hike is what the president said. And that messaging, Scott, has not landed yet. It's the top domestic priority for the president because it's the top domestic concern for voters. And this speech today is essentially a pre-buttle of the Consumer Price Index data for April, which will be released tomorrow and will likely be incredibly elevated yet again. And the administration is trying to play offense here to lay that number at the feet of Republicans and say that their policy pr proposals would increase taxes and increase costs when Republicans for months have been calling this Biden inflation and blaming it on the president's own policies. Now, today's speech was more like a retroactive speech about what the president and the White House have already done or tried to do on inflation. And he says there will be more to come in the future on what they can do from here. Scott, there are really only two arrows left in the quiver. Number one, the suspension of the federal gas tax, which many Democrats have been loath to do because they're not certain that that would actually hit consumers' bottom lines. And number two is a rollback of at least some of the tariffs on goods imported from China. A lot of businesses and importers have been asking the administration for this for quite some time. That process has dragged on, and I'm told there's some disagreement within the White House on exactly how to approach that. But of course, the clock is ticking, and we'll see when they make a decision there. Scott? So, uh, Kayla, thank you. He also knows, um, you know, his options, frankly, are, are somewhat limited uh, because he does call out the Fed 
not in a negative way, but specifically references the job of the Fed, uh, certainly laying the solution at the feet of the Fed. As all of you heard, the Fed should do his, its job, said the president, and it's, it will uh, do its job. That's the principal story we've been talking about every day here as we look at what's happening in the stock market as the Fed has raised interest rates and plans to do so at subsequent meetings for the next couple of months. Kayla Tausche, appreciate that. Let's give a reset here and show you exactly uh, where we stand because it's been an interesting session already in the barely three hours that the stock uh, market has been open. Dow was positive, but we we're really positive across the board to start things off. Dipped in negative territory. The Nasdaq has been fluctuating between positive and negative for the better part of the last hour or so. It's positive now by about 24, 25. Dow still giving back 200 and then yields, which touched 320 on the 10-year yesterday, 295. So we've had a dump down there uh, in the yields. By the way, Joining me today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. And back with me on set today for the first time in more than two years is Josh Brown. We're good to, ha good to have you here as well. It's been a long time coming. Did you get taller? <laughs> a little bit. Okay. A little bit. I the, lost weight. I don't the, know if you The chair tell. does wonders. Okay. Um, let me pose things to you uh, first. I'm trying to figure out exactly where we are. In, in three trading days, the NASDAQ was down 10%. Yeah. Okay. S&P down seven, the Dow down five. David Tepper tells Jim Cramer today, um, I covered my NASDAQ short as a trade. And he was specific to Jim in that it, it, it was as such. But nonetheless, yeah. is it time to start buying stocks, covering shorts? Well, as you know, and everyone knows, David could put it back on in an hour. And he wouldn't be required to update anyone. And, uh, you know, it's very different when you're in his position than when you're just trying to make smart decisions with your own portfolio um, and make sure you can pay for things like college and retirement. So you're probably not going to want to be that aggressive back and forth, try to play both sides of the market. But I do think if you skipped most of the economic commentary and really just focused on technicals, you did yourself a huge favor. The Nasdaq broke down uh, in, in, at the, in the end of February, last week of February, very clearly below every major moving average. And the S&P didn't really join it until uh, the end of April. And here we are 11 days into the month of May, and that trend continues lower. And the number one thing that we talked about, uh, Judge, uh, when you have a major market below a major moving average, like the 10-month, historically, you're going to get huge volatility in both directions. And the number one priority for every investor right now should be not to get overly bearish when markets do what they did yesterday and not get overly bullish when they do what they did last Wednesday when the Fed famously took 75 base points off the table. Because it only took 48 hours before the narrative to shift to, hey, they should have left 75 <coughs> basis points on the table. Yeah, right. That's why. So we, we can't play this game. We have to understand the technicals. We're in a bear market. Not like my opinion. Technically, we're in a bear market. 50% of the NASDAQ is down more than 50%. You've got individual stocks in 1929 right now, and you've got most stocks in some version. You've got, uh, you've got Microsoft, Amazon, Apple. All of them have lost $500 billion in market cap. You can't be in a situation like that and not call it a bear market. So if you know that's the environment, You've got to tighten up your stops if you're a trader, and you've got to let, let a lot of opportunities on the long side go. And if you're an investor, you have to think about raising your savings rate because returns are not going to be as good as they've been. And that is the new mindset that you're going to need to survive this year. So a number of things to discuss. Um, because you talk about where we are, whether it's a, a bear market or not, Jim Labenthal, you, you, you don't want to admit that it's a bear market, because what you told our producing team today is that you're, you're still convinced it's a correction and not a bear market. And as you heard Josh just describe, and the numbers don't lie, uh, it is, in fact, a, a bear market. It's a matter of how long it's going to last, right? It's a matter of price and a matter of time. And maybe we haven't gone through enough time, even though the price has obviously been ugly. So there's a few things to consider here. It's a bear market in the NASDAQ. You know, the numbers don't lie there. The NASDAQ, however, as I've said for quite some time, is not the market overall. It's a sector fund. Two-thirds of it is communications and telecom excuse me, telecommunications and technology. It's not the broad market overall. That's what the S&P 500 is. Now, I will tell you we're close to the technical definition of a bear market, but we're not there yet, which is down 20% on the S&P 500. We're just not there yet. On the other hand, 
there is more than the technical definition of a bear market. Bear markets last a very long time. If you think just about the great financial crisis, went down over 50%, took five and a half years to recover. Uh, tech telecom bust went down almost 50%, took seven years to recover. A correction, which is, yes, what I believe we're in right now, is much different. A correction is over and done with in a year. Take a look at 2015 to 2016. That correction peak to trough was nine months. You were covered in five months. And in the entire year of 2016 was a very positive year. Frankly, that's where I think we are now. But here's the important point. When you're at the bottom in a correction, it feels terrible. And it feels like it's going to be a heck of a lot worse. In part, that's because of a lot of false bottoms. Uh, the 2015-2016 correction had four bottoms before the final bottom was put in. We're on our fourth bottom in this potential correction. Only time will tell if it's a correction or a bear market. The fundamentals have to support it. Now, on that, I will say this. This is a market, and this is a call, correction versus bear market, that teeters on the fulcrum of what inflation does. And I hate I hate looking at tomorrow's CPI report as the Super Bowl of economic statistics, but frankly, it's very, very important. I am a long-term investor, but for the short-term call, whether we're in a correction, whether it's going to get something worse, that CPI tomorrow is very, very important. If it comes in below 8%, I'm going to feel a lot better on the headline okay. year over year. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. So, Steph, I, I turn to you. And, and Fundstrat's Mark Newton has a note today. He says it's still too early to call a technical bottom. Bottom line, it's early to expect a meaningful low, he says. A defensive stance remains prudent. One should be heavily diversified and not overly concentrated, particularly in sectors like technology, which are under tremendous pressure. Opportunities to buy dips should materialize over the next one to two months. That suggests that there's more time to go and as such, probably more downside, at least in price. According to this gentleman here, he points to stocks like Microsoft, big, important stocks that have broken support. 270 was the line in the sand for him. Josh has talked about a number 270, 275 for Microsoft as well. If you take a look at the mega cap wreck, as we're calling it, we'll show you a wall of what we're speaking about. Over the last three sessions alone, there are stocks like Apple, which has given back $220 billion, billion in market cap. There's Microsoft at near 190, Amazon 173, Tesla 199. Alphabet 123, NVIDIA 85, Meta 70 for a total of $1 trillion in market cap lost simply over the last three sessions. But I do pose the same question to you as to whether you think we are, if not at, are we close to a bottom? I mean, I don't, I don't really have an answer. I don't think anybody really has an answer, Scott. The whole problem this year, and I've been talking about it since the beginning of this year, is there's just too many moving parts that we don't have resolution to. Fed, inflation, war, China. And on the other hand, no one wants to really point out that, the, meanwhile, the consumer is doing just fine, especially on the services side. The services component within GDP was 4.3% last month. That's a very good number. Business investment is also very encouraging, up 9.2%, also in that GDP report. Um, and, and you also have decent earnings coming in around 10% or so. Yeah, maybe they come down because we have inflation and we are going to see a slower economy. But that's the whole reason why we are seeing this multiple contract all year long. We went from 21.6 times in January. We're now at 17.3 times, and it's fallen pretty fast. The average is 16. So to directly answer your question, could we go to the average? Of course we could. If we could we go below? Well, we, we know the market can overshoot. So if that happens, we're going lower, right? Well, and at the same time, unless you get resolution on any one of these things, wait a second, unless you get resolution on any one of these things, you're not going to get multiple expansion. So add it all up, and you have a very choppy trading environment in the markets this year, and it's been very, very painful. And I will, I will uh, just take issue with Jim. I think the CPI is very important, but I do not think it's a Super Bowl, because even if it does come in below 8% year over year uh, tomorrow, you still have very elevated inflation across the spectrum, not only just in wages, right, that we know are 5.5 percent. In rents, we've talked about that. That's much more sticky. You had well, a unit labor cost number that was up 11.6 percent last week. So there's serious inflation out there. And even if we're peaking, it's going to stay elevated. And that is a concern. For, for and certain. It, it will hurt the multiple in the overall market. For certain. However, I mean, I, I can understand where Jim's coming from calling the CPI the Super Bowl because you better bet your bottom dollar that if it doesn't confirm 
that inflation <laughs> has peaked, it ain't going to be pretty. I mean, there is now it's still so be high. much. That's my point. Hot is different. Everybody it's knows it's still going to be Everybody knows that. It's still going to be elevated. If it doesn't show that inflation has peaked, you're going to have a problem. L- let me also say this. To your notion that the consumer, the GDP shows that consumer is, is fine. The consumer, what the consumer. It's fine. It's what, was the consumer okay, was the, what the consumer was doing is irrelevant. It's what the consumer is going to be doing here forward that matters more than anything. I look at something like Upstart today. AI lending, right? One of these fancy new uh, fintech companies, whatever you want want to call it. Um, The buy now, pay never stocks. Um, Look at that right there, 59. Is that a canary in the coal mine on what's happening with the consumer? Um, Fintechs are getting crushed today. SoFi's outlook was bad. Their earnings came out before the schedule of later today after the bell. The stock was under five bucks. It was getting absolutely destroyed, down by 19%. So reading the consumer by what the GDP report said, Steph, to me um, is old news. The consumer can change its behavior in an an instant. And I'm just wondering if you look at the consumer credit numbers, which are through the roof, right? Credit card balances are, are through the roof. Um, that story can change, and it can change quickly. It absolutely can, but they have $2.7 trillion in excess savings on their balance sheets, um, and that is not getting spent down as fast as expected. Even Neil Kashkari said that yesterday. It's, they're, they're taking the, the, the money from their wage increases and spending and using it that way, and so that's why the job market is so incredibly important. It's so tight, and that's why wages are good for the consumer, by the way. And I'm listening to other financial services companies, by the way, which all of us own, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. Listen to what those CEOs had to say about the health and the strength of the consumer. So no, I'm not just looking at a GDP number. That was one example. I could list 10 different uh, items and I talk to companies all the time and they do believe that the consumer is still in fine shape. Will it erode a little bit? Yeah, but you're at record low delinquency rates and charge-offs and provisioning. So Real companies, real financial services companies that have their feet on the ground um, and, and they know what the consumer and businesses are doing, are, it's really important to listen to what they have to say as well. And again, business investment was super important last week, 9.2%. That's, best, that's the best number since second quarter 2022. Yeah. 2020, sorry. Doc, Dr. J, um, how do mm-hmm. you see things, right? I mean, you, you watch volatility. So the VIX last I saw you was bet. 33. Okay, it's at 34. So what we got, we got us, we, we, we mm-hmm. haven't hit 40, right? The number that some in the pure capitulation camp have been looking for. Um, how do you see things now mm-hmm. as to whether you think that we have put in or we're close to putting in a, a bottom? And I should let you know, as we're having this conversation, the NASDAQ is still positive by 11 points. The Dow is negative by 235 okay. and the S&P is down by 16. Yeah, Scott, um, I talked to a number of other uh, derivative trading groups, uh, people that have tens of billions of dollars um, in derivative trades. And I asked them if they were seeing something similar to what Pete and I always say with you uh, and to your viewers, and that is that in the low 20s, we're a buyer of vol. In the upper 20s to the low 30s, we're a seller of volatility. And then, you know, you match your stock up against that. When you disconnect, when you let the volatility run higher than that, everybody steps back. And so that was confirmed by a number of firms, spoke to two of them yesterday. Again, one of them with a little over $3 billion in derivative exposure, the other with over 10. And they both said the same thing, Scott. They step back when it gets as high as it's gotten. And that's why I think when, this morning when we had a 500-point rally in the Dow, and I know the VIX isn't tied to the Dow, it's on the S&P, but nonetheless, still 500-point rally in the Dow, the VIX wouldn't break 33. Um, and that's because there just aren't sellers out there, Scott, of volatility or risk at that level. They're going to let it go. Um, so what you need to see to, your, to answer your question directly is still volume and volatility. I need to see uh, a VIX that's in there in the high 30s, and I need to see 
50 to 60 million option contract turnover. We've not been seeing that. We've been seeing 43 million, which is about average, and average ain't going to cut it for capitulation. You're going to see capitulation when you see um, the, that uh, huge volume surge and volatility spike. And then, you know, maybe we'll know it that day. Maybe, as people say, you'll know it two weeks from then. But that's when I will say, yep, we have capitulated. Um, this is a great opportunity. Right Judge. now, it's a trader's market. Okay. It is not a capitulatory right. move. Do me a favor. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Let's do this. Let me take a quick break. We're going to come back. We'll mm -hmm. kick it on the other side. Josh has a point to make. I know all of you have more points to make as well. We've got actually some activity uh, from the committee today. Steph's making a bunch of moves, and we need to talk about those. We need to talk about Kathy Wood, too. Interesting move that ARC made. Got to hear about that. We'll be right back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Kayla Tausche at the White House, where President Biden just concluded some remarks on inflation and how the administration is planning to combat it. In a lengthy question and answer session following those remarks, President Biden was asked whether the administration would be removing tariffs on goods imported from China in order to help ease inflationary pressures for a lot of those businesses that import those goods. President Biden, for the first time, confirming that that is under discussion, saying that it is a live discussion right now. Earlier this hour, we told you that the issue was a live discussion on the table right now and that there was disagreement between agencies and aides on exactly which, if any, tariffs to remove, although we do expect some movement on that front in the coming months, if not the coming weeks. Scott, back to you. Okay. Kayla Tausche, thanks so much. Uh, note stocks here, too. Dow's down 357. We're at the lows of the session across the board. Uh, apropos to what we've been talking about, uh, the inflation issue uh, that the markets are trying to come to grips with, that the Fed is trying to do its best to fight. Um, and that is what the market is all trying to figure out as to whether the Fed's going to be uh, successful in doing that uh, without hurting the economy too badly in the process. So there's the Dow right now down about 350. That's a loss of a little more than 1%. The S&P 500 notably gave away 4,000 yesterday, and it's still sitting below that level after briefly being above that target just a few moments ago, or at least uh, or earlier in the session today. Um, all of that said, as I mentioned to all of you, uh, some of our investment committee members are, are making moves. And there are a number of stocks I thought really interesting today. Bespoke put a note out suggesting uh, Amazon and Netflix and Starbucks and so many other stocks within that universe. About 40 or so stocks in the Nasdaq 100 are now below their pre-pandemic all-time highs. Starbucks, I just said on the list, Stephanie Link is making some moves, including adding to Starbucks along with Walgreens, Accenture uh, and Target. Can you talk to me why? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this is what I do. This is my process. I buy quality on sale. And am I going to get the bottom price? I, I hope I do, but I probably won't. And so when I started a new position like Starbucks that I did um, uh, last week, I actually bought small. And I said at the time I probably would be adding um, over the coming weeks on any weakness if we saw it. I think this is now Howard Schultz's fix and that you're, getting, you're going to get a new CEO that he endorses. You have a September analyst day. That's a catalyst. You have $20 billion that they removed from their buyback program over the next three years. They can now invest in people, places, and certainly things like food. Um, and, and I think in spite of all of the problems that the company has had, they've had above average U.S. same store sales growth. Um, and that's really very impressive. We know the problems in China. Eventually, I think they get resolved. So down 38 percent. The stock is trading at the low end of its historical multiple. It may go down further, but I'll be buying it down further if so. Yeah. OK. Um, those are some interesting moves uh, right here. Um, Josh Brown, is now that I mean, are you looking for things to buy? You know, as I've been saying, when when markets get really, really negative, you have to be looking at uh, companies and say to yourself, OK, this too shall pass. And maybe I'm not buying the bottom. And I agree with what Stephanie's saying. And Starbucks is a great example. Starbucks is ground zero for inflation and labor issues and employee wage issues and like a lot of in China and a lot of unresolved things. And you don't have to be expecting outperformance from the stock next week in order to recognize, hey, maybe this is a good price to buy it. So I do agree with that approach. I've been adding to some things like Amazon. Uh, I talked about A.O. Smith last week, which holds up like a champ. There are small things that you can be doing. I just don't think we want to be in the camp of this is it and I'm Mr. All-In or uh, this is the bottom. Like, and nobody on the show acts that way, by the way. I don't mean that directed toward anyone. I really feel that we want Good to be save. respectful. <laughs> no, no, no. Jimmy, no. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy knows I, don't, I feel I, I have nothing but respect for him. But I think we want to be respectful of the power of markets when there is an attitude adjustment. And I am telling you right now. When I see NASDAQ up a few hundred points, the first thing that occurs to me is people are out there looking for something that they can sell. That is a huge attitude adjustment relative to 2020 and 2021. And that is just the way it's going to be, because everyone and everything in this economy is under pressure. And to that effect, this idea the consumer is doing great. No, 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 no. The consumer has no choice but to spend or they won't eat. The consumer is on a treadmill from hell and they're just trying to keep up and everything that they were paying for last year is significantly higher this year. Don't interpret them spending more as them being fine. Now, thank God the labor market is as tight as it is. And thank God there are 1.9 jobs for every person searching for a job. That may just be the thing that keeps this a soft landing and not a recession. But the consumer, according to every survey under the sun, is miserable. Okay, let's talk ARC. Because yesterday we learned that ARC sold some Tesla in a couple of funds and took a stake for the first time ever in Jimmy's General Motors. Now, I don't know what to make of this when you first saw it, Jim. So I'll let you do that because that's what you're supposed to do for a living. I'm just supposed to be surprised or not surprised by something I see. <laughs> you tell me what you make of Kathy Wood buying General Motors. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I've got to dissect your sentence, but what I make of Kathy Wood is, is this perhaps a paradigm shift where there's more of an emphasis on valuation? It's a rhetorical question that I can't answer. As far as the actual act of buying General Motors, Look, I, I, I see reason to do so. I mean, first off, the legacy business is strong. It's only held back by semiconductors. But even within the semiconductor shortage, they're putting up some pretty impressive numbers. They've got a very, very strong autonomous vehicle uh, business in Cruise that's already up and operating in San Francisco. That technology is migrating to all of their car platforms. And then there's the EV business. Now, I, I want to look at this objectively. Their EV business has a lot of promise, and that promise needs to turn into actual results right now. I'm on the waiting list for this new Cadillac Electric Lyric. I want to see this thing with my, you know, my first hands. Um, apparently, it's in production, but I haven't received notice of when I'm going to receive it. And I'd like to receive that like right after this show. Um, it leaves me a little bit cold that it's waited so long. But in theory, 
they should have a very strong electric vehicle business. I'd like to see that come through. The legacy vehicle business, the valuation, the valuation, six times earnings, positive free cash flow, I think that's something that merits buying. Whether this is a paradigm shift for Kathy Wood, only she knows. Okay. Uh, down 34% over the last six months, GM. Doc, you own Tesla shares. Uh, as interesting mm -hmm. as the GM buy was, certainly selling a little bit of Tesla in a couple of funds was equally as interesting to pay attention to. Yeah, and this is a lady that did accurately say that Tesla would print 4,000, which it's done um, with these splits, you know, that they just did last year, I think, Scott. Um, but uh, I was really taken with this one and sort of uh, shaking my head because, uh, again, the largest uh, consumer of lithium on the planet is Elon Musk's Tesla. And I don't know, since you have a real hard time getting it right now, Scott, I can't really believe that you want to go to a secondary player. Uh, to, I agree with Jim. The Lyric or any of these are going to be great vehicles, but they're not going to make 500,000 of those vehicles anytime soon. So do you really skip over uh, the one that is uh, in that catbird seat in terms of battery production and the biggest customer of Vale and all of these companies that pull that stuff out of the ground? No, I don't think so. But again, Kathy didn't call me and ask, Scott, but that was just my opinion. I got you. Uh, you have a comment? <laughs> I think she's lowering the beta in her ETF. If I were a consultant hired by uh, ARK Investments, like what can we do to kind of put an end to what we're going through right now, that's probably the advice I would give. Look for innovation, but also look for companies that are going to be here in two years. And maybe even a dividend, it would, probably wouldn't kill you. So maybe that's what's going on there. All right, up next, Doc has unusual activity. We'll give you those trades after the break. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Dr. J, take it away. Unusual activity. What do you see for us today? All right, Scott. I know Josh and I both have this one, NVDA. Uh, it's a very short-term trade, but it's a $175 stock, uh, and they're buying a $5 out-of-the-money call, the 180s that expire this Friday. They paid about $3 for those, so you can see why they'd elect to do that rather than putting $175 at risk but it is a short-term trade. Second one, Western Digital, a lot more time to be right. These are July 65 calls with that particular stock, uh, Western Dig and you know solid state drives and so forth, uh, trading at $58 a share. Um, so you have, again, a lot more time to be right in that trade. 5,000 of those calls changed hands. Third and final is JD. Um, this is, of course, computer sales and a host of other things in China, online sales. And JD 
they're buying puts um, at the uh, 45 strike that expire basically in the second two weeks from now on the 20th of May, Scott. They bought the 45 puts. That was with the uh, JD trading at 51.30 this morning. Um, so these are decently out of the money. But boy, we all know we could get there in a hurry like that. So I bought these puts and I will look to sell a lower put against it if it starts moving in that direction. Okay. Uh, Doc, thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, Kate Rooney is going to pop on and talk, talk more about uh, what SoFi reported. As I said, the numbers came out earlier than expected. They were supposed to report after the bell tonight. Uh, they, in fact, came out early. The stock was lower. She has the details next. Okay, welcome back. I want to show you uh, shares of, of SoFi and bring in our, our Kate Rooney, who's been digging through the release. Um, Kate, it's good to have you. The stock's still halted. I should let all of you know that first and foremost. Uh, halted down 18.5%. Um, there are some who are frankly taking issue with my characterization of the guidance as being quote-unquote bad. Um, can you shed some light Kate, on what the real story is here, please. <laughs> sure, Scott. Yeah, so we got a sneak peek at the SoFi numbers. This was a release that came out early on the SoFi site. It said a test release. And I've confirmed with the source that these numbers are accurate. The company itself hasn't put out a statement, I'm told, to expect a press release earlier than the normal 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, we will get an official statement from SoFi. I have not heard back from the company yet. The stock did fall significantly after that test release came out. And that was due to the guidance, Scott, like you mentioned. That was weaker than expected when you compare it to the numbers that Wall Street was expecting. So second quarter revenue in particular, they're looking, based on this release that we've got here, for 330 to $340 million. That was below the estimates of $342 million full-year revenue, looking for about $1.5 to $1.51 billion. Uh, that was a slight beat, but second quarter revenue looking uh, a little bit slower than expected. It actually does look like the first quarter numbers were a beat. Still a loss, though, for SoFi, 14 cent loss versus 15 cents that Wall Street was expecting. And then revenues were also a beat for the quarter and were up 49 percent from the same uh, time a year ago. It also looks like some strong member growth here. But again, we'll uh, get more details on this from SoFi, I'm told, in the next couple hours here. Scott, back to you. If not before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if not before. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. Uh, that's Kate Rooney there. Um, so, so, okay. Dr. J, uh, <laughs> fintech, fintech. Let's focus on fintech, Doc. It's not good um, these yes, days. Sir. We're looking at this stock. Okay. We're looking at Upstart, which I said uh, a firm was down big today. PayPal's been in the crosshairs. Um, what is the investability? of this space right now? Um, I, I was about to make a trade in SoFi, Scott, uh, when it got shut down, when that leak or whatever it was, that mistake, fat finger, whatever, happened at uh, about 11 o'clock Eastern time. Um, so I don't really know. I would only touch most of these with options. I would not be buying stock in these names, Scott, because of these moves being as big as you just said. I mean, upstart, that's an absolutely scary move that that stock made. Same thing with SoFi. I don't know why somebody would let their cash get vaporized like that. An option trade, you can limit your risk on that entry. Uh, but with the stock, especially now with it halted and so forth, um, I, I think investors are probably going to shun most of these names. Yeah, I don't understand the valuation on on. So SoFi is basically trading as though student loan moratorium is live or die, whether or not it happens in 22. And I guess the odds of it happening in 22 are not great or whatever, whatever the day the, the to day political commentary is. This is a company that just got its own bank charter. Uh, I was looking I was looking at this thing at 12. I said, if it ever gets under 10, I'll buy it. Thank God I never pulled the trigger on it. Now it's under five. This this company is is basically in a situation where the stadium they own the naming rights to is worth more than the market cap. It's a five and a half billion dollar stadium. They're paying like 400 million for the naming rights. 
This market cap is sub $4 billion. I really don't understand who is selling this thing. Why don't they just bring it private? Because there's no reason for a company to keep getting punished on the same news month after month. But again, that's, uh, that's what we're seeing across the whole space. Trillions uh, going away in, in fintech uh, and other disruptive software companies. This doesn't look very much different than what's gone on with PayPal. It's just a smaller dollar price stock. I think at a certain point, it's just way too much. Stephanie Link. Yes. No, I'm not involved in any of the fintech names. Um, I, I looked at PayPal a while ago, but just couldn't get comfortable with eBay. You know I like the financials. You know I'm overweight the financials. I want to own traditional banks trading at 1.1 to 1.3 times book with strong capital positions, good dividends, good dividend growth and solid management teams. And um, and so that's where I'm playing. I do own American Express, but I don't view them at all as a, a fintech. Uh, and they have actually done nothing but over deliver this year and the last two. Yeah. All right. We're going to keep our eyes there, uh, certainly on, on all of those stocks. And uh, if we do hear anything more related to SoFi, I, pr I promise we'll bring it to you. We'll do final trades next. Big overtime today, 4 o'clock Eastern time. It's an exclusive Lee Cooperman, the Omega family office. He's the founder, the chairman, and the CEO. We are going to get his view, views on where we stand in the markets right now. Remember, he said before he was a fully invested bear. Then he came on with me um, not so long ago, a few weeks back, and uh, certainly had lightened up his exposure, uh, but was still negative on the market. So we're going to find out exactly where he stands today. You know, energy stocks have been really interesting of late, and he has a lot of uh, exposure there, too. So we'll, we'll discuss all of that with Lee, 4 o'clock Eastern time. We do have earnings coming up after the bell. Um, it's, it's Coinbase. It's Roblox. Speaking of Josh, you still own Roblox? Yeah. Tiny and shrinking uh, position. <laughs> shrinking as we speak. Shrinking. <laughs> shrinking by me not doing anything with it. Uh, Roblox is going to report tonight. Uh, not much revenue growth, but a much better uh, loss, let's put it, than the prior year. They should lose 24 cents versus 46 cents. Same quarter in the prior year. Uh, great company. Doesn't really matter. This stock's not going to work in this environment. I bought it in a different environment and should have gotten rid of it a long time ago. Uh, if you're in it, I'd be looking for a huge rally if, in fact, you ever get one, probably to exit it. I don't see Wall Street taking an interest in anything like this for uh, uh, quite a while. Wow. Hey, Doc, I I'm looking right now. There's a report that Tom Brady's new deal is for 10 years is a report. 10 years, $375 million. Yeah, that's right. Buy stock in TB12. Yep. Can you believe that? No. I know. And no. autograph, uh, yeah. you know, if anything works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yes, congratulations, Tom Brady. Well done, yeah. sir. Final trade, Doc. Um, I have XME. XME, sir. June, June 50 calls. Okay, uh, Farmer Jim. NVIDIA, whether you believe my correction call or not, we're at least due for a relief rally. Semis should lead, and this is the biggest impact within the sector. Okay, mm. uh, Stephanie Link. Target, the stock is trading at 14.8 times earnings. Historical average is 16 to 20 times. They're gaining market share. I think the upcoming quarter is going to be a strong one. Okay, thank you. Josh Brown. I think the two-year is in the bottoming process. There are no cold strikes on Wall Street. You don't have to do anything you don't want right now, getting about a 2.5% annual yield right. on this one. All right. Great to see you back here. Good and uh, you're you going to see more investment committee members here, too, and we look forward to that. I'll see you later on. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.